Hey everyone, welcome to How Movies Get Made, featuring filmmaker, author, uh, general creator Dan Mervish. You even co-created the Slamdance Film Festival, an amazing independent film festival uh, that rivals Sundance literally at the same time in the same location. Uh, thank you for spending the time with me today. Sure, no, thank you, Adam. Thanks for having me on. Dan and I talk about filming in remote locations, but also having to record remotely due to the COVID situation. Then we see how the conversation is a pretty similar project to Dan's latest. And lastly, tips on choosing the music for your film. Why don't you talk to us first about your latest project? The latest film, the uh, narrative feature film that I'm doing is called 18 and a Half. It is a 70s era Watergate conspiracy thriller. Um, and we just shot most of it, uh, just did production right before the pandemic hit. And then we had to take a pandemic pause. So, um, so I am currently editing the footage that we do have, which is about 80% of the movie. We're shooting, uh, way on the tip of Long Island on the North Fork in a town called Greenport. Um, and the, uh, in a wonderful location called the Silver Sands, Motel and Cottages, which is run by my good buddy Terry Keefe, who's, who's one of my producing partners on the film. Cool. And uh, Terry inherited this motel uh, from his grandparents, basically, and runs it with his folks. And it was built in the in the late fifties and the sixties, and it still looks like a period nineteen seventy four motel. And he's really kept it up largely for that purposes. It's, it's a very busy motel, usually during the summers, mm. but he rents it out for a lot of music videos and fashion shoots and things like that, but no one's ever shot a feature there. So he said, hey, if you come up with a feature idea, we're closed during the winters. And, um, and so came up with this uh, Watergate idea and then got together with our other friend, Daniel Moya, uh, who you know, Daniel, and uh, Daniel wrote the script based on a story that he and I came up with. and. Um, yeah, and it's about the missing 18 and a half minute gap. Or is it missing? Or is it a gap? Um, we'll have to watch to find out. You'll have to. Yeah, we'll have to finish shooting it. <laughs> yes, exactly. So anyway, so we, were, so we were out there. So it's about like two and a half or three hours outside of New York City. The production challenges for shooting in more of a remote location like that, how yeah. did you overcome mm -hmm. some of those, whether it's getting equipment out there or a crew, et cetera? Yeah, so that was that was probably the biggest challenge. Because once we were out there, we were we were in pretty good shape and went pretty smoothly. But yeah, we especially from New York, um, you know, where not everybody has their own cars. You know, as opposed to shooting like in L.A., where people sort of generally have their own cars. Right. But yeah, getting equipment. So we, in some cases, we had some of the vendors drive a truck out there, drop things off. And then when two weeks were over, they had to drive back out and pick things up. In some cases, we had a PA with a truck uh, that we would rent in New York. But then there was a question, do you rent it for the full run of the two weeks or do you rent it at the beginning? Do you rent it at the end? Mm -hmm. You know, I think there was a passenger van that we kept for the whole whole run of it. Um, because we were for runs and things like that. that yeah, for little runs. Yeah, you filmed in a lot of locations though, like Omaha and other places that don't have quite as much film production as as New yeah. York and even what it sounds like this Greenport location. You know yeah. how important has it been having a location that is what we call production friendly? Well, your... yeah, I mean Greenport itself didn't have any equipment or anything so everything had to come in from new york city which is you know three hours away but or two and a half hours away but at least you know it's not eight hours away right. um when i shot my first film omaha the movie that's the name of it 
uh, and we shot it in Omaha and throughout Nebraska. It wasn't just in Omaha. Um, that was tough because we, the biggest challenge was that, um, we were shooting film. This was in the early nineties and we were shooting 35 millimeter. Yeah. And so we had to get dailies back and forth. There was no lab in Omaha. The closest lab was LA, <laughs> you know, the, the lab that we were using was, was Photocam in LA. Mm. So we had to figure out how are we going to ship dailies back and forth? And of course it doesn't wind up being dailies. It winds up being weeklies really. Um, and so we wound up doing a product placement deal with American Airlines, their package division, uh, where they gave us free shipping of our dailies back and forth, the negative. And, uh, but in exchange, we had to have someone uh, show up at an airport American Airlines counter and hand deliver an American Airlines uh, parcel package to the American counter. Now, this was not in the script. Uh, there was an airline, an airport scene in the script, but we just thought, oh, we'll have a plane landing. And they're like, no, that's not good enough. Then the passenger division gets all the credit. Mm. And so luckily we had been trying to get free food from a bunch of other, um, you know, restaurants uh, throughout the state. And, and my producing partner uh, said, had just gotten off the phone with the Red Robin hamburger chain. He goes, oh yeah, the Red Robin will give us, uh, you know, free food for a day. Well, like a, like a lunch. And I was like, great. Uh, I said, what's the catch? Well, they want their mascot in the movie. I said, mascot? Yeah, a guy in a giant red bird suit, one of their employees. It's like, well, that's weird. So what we did was we, if you watch that movie now, which you can sort of see it on Amazon Prime, uh, there's a guy in a giant red bird suit delivering an American Airlines parcel package uh, to the American Airlines counter at the nice. beginning of the movie. So you do whatever you you need to do to make it happen no matter where you are so yeah. but yeah no in a remote area you try to bring extras you try to bring a, two cameras two sets of batteries two you know extra microphones you, you you prepare for the worst because the worst will happen yeah yeah it it definitely can uh and you do talk about some of these anecdotes from your prior productions for everyone else's knowledge in this amazing book very useful book I'm plugging shamelessly. Oh, there you go. Thank you. There the Cheerful is, yeah. Subversive's Guide to Independent Filmmaking, which you're working on your second edition right now, I hear. I am, yeah. That's during the upside this time the pandemic is I just got approved to, to do a second edition from Focal Press and Rutledge. So, uh, yeah, awesome. so this way now I can have a whole chapter on how to shoot a film in a global pandemic. Cool. Well, I'm happy to have a teaser of it here because I do want to yeah. ask you, you know, it's interesting you're making a movie about the Watergate tapes Mm -hmm. and the and the recording of them but also the listening of them right yeah listening mm -hmm. to them and the conversation is obviously uh, uh an important reference for your film francis ford coppola's the conversation edited and sound edited by sound designed by walter murch um and they were actually unable to shoot the entire script that they had written which is about a 158 page script and usually got wow. about a page a minute is the calculation yeah. from page yeah. to screen time. And it's an under two hour movie. So if you do the math, that's under 120 pages would be expected. Um, mm -hmm. Apparently Walter Murch said they only had one pickup shot. Uh, wow. They shot, but they were cut short on their shooting schedule because of going over budget and whatnot. So I'm curious, you know, I was reading a Walter Murch talking about this process of not having all the footage they expected and things and making those exploratory choices and editing even sooner than being finished. But then once being finished, you know, not having all the things they thought they would have. Your production, which is a little similar in a 
different way because different motivation for this pause, right? This mm -hmm. uh, global pandemic we're experiencing and, and the- Yeah, we were actually on schedule that. and on budget. Right, so <laughs> you could have up been- Up until we home, weren't. <laughs> but you didn't yeah. get to. So what are you yeah. exploring now with some editing that you might be doing with the film and, and how are you approaching that? Well, we're lucky in one respect, which is that, you know, a big part of the plot of the movie is these characters. It's a, it's a, a, a woman from a White House employees leaking this tape to uh, a, a reporter and, and they're meeting at this motel to, to listen to the tape. And so, you know, there's a big climax in the movie where they're listening to the 18 and a half minute tape. Mm -hmm. So we had actually already, even before the whole pandemic thing, the plan was always that the three actors that were going to play Nixon, uh, Bob Haldeman, who was his first chief of staff, and Al Haig, his second chief of staff, um, those three actors were always going, to, we were always going to record them in post-production. Mm. Um, probably in a studio, but even before the pandemic, we were thinking of recording them remotely. You know, just logistically, one's in Oregon, one's in LA, one may be in New York. Um, so the good news is because the, everyone is doing everything on Zoom, everything is being done remotely, it's actually a little bit easier for us to at least convince the actors and their agents that, yeah, doing this remotely is just fine. That's the new normal. Yeah. Um, so we're going to be doing those sessions in about a week and a half. And, um, and every, you know, the actors are all fine to just, uh, you know, do it at their houses and, and there's, you know, there's technology-wise, there's kind of no reason not to, but just sort of... And it's better than not know, acting at all. And it's better than not acting. And yeah, so availability actually makes them a little... You know, we one person actually right before I got on this call, one of them just dropped out, so we have to cast someone new. But I'm like, you know what? There's a lot of actors not doing anything right now. So this is kind of the perfect time. And, and there's, you know, and there's a lot of actors that are doing sort of podcasts and voiceovers and, and radio plays. And, you know, there's a lot of that going on now so it's it's sort of it's it's in the it's in the ether so we're sort of in a at a perfect time to do that part of the project um and and honestly it'll be a lot cheaper and we don't have to rent studio space now we know we're going to have to go back and shoot four more days the scenes that we already had scheduled but the advantage to this is that i could have looked i can look at the footage that we have and go oh wait a minute if we're coming back anyway we can be like a big hollywood movie Holly, big hollywood movies always do pickup shots right little budget indie movies don't always do or rarely do pickup shots because you just can't afford to get the crew back together well we know we're going to have to get the crew back together so this does give us the opportunity to if we need it um to go back and and reshoot something or, or add a shot here or there that we for whatever reason we didn't get. Um, now the good news is, uh, having gone through all the footage now, I can tell you that we actually don't need to reshoot any. Um, everything we shot turned, you know, it's exposed right, it's in focus, it's the actors right. did, did a great job. Um, so that's the good news, but it gives us that, you know, peace of mind to know that, uh, well, if we do, if, you know, if there's one little shot or one little angle we need to pick up or an exterior shot or something, we can do it now. I mean, the irony is a lot of what people are saying is, oh, you've got to go somewhere where the cast and crew can totally self-isolate mm -hmm. and self-quarantine and, and work with a small number of people on set. And, you know, and, and I'm listening to all this and, 
you know, like the studio people are like, and, and network people are like, oh my gosh, this is going to be such a change for us and like not have anyone at Video Village. And I'm thinking to myself, that's exactly what we were doing anyway. That is our motive of shooting. Like we had a tiny crew, had almost nobody at Video, yeah, there was no Video Village, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and we were all self-isolated. You know, so, it's almost like this approach that you're taking on this film, but also a lot of approaches that a lot of indie films take, you know, isolating to one location, things like that, mm-hmm. is almost benefited by this broken up uh, approach. Like, yeah. why not film in chunks anyways? Why do we do it in one spurt? Yeah, exactly. Well, there's, I mean, there's economics of, of you know, the equipment and insurance and things right, like that. But you're saying it's usually on a weekly rate, right? So I'm just like yeah. hypothesizing, yeah, yeah, yeah. like what if we right. generally just did week long spurts and had time in between to edit and explore and all that sort of stuff. And yeah. Record these no, people, I mean, these actors. And definitely, and probably, yeah. And there's definitely filmmakers that have done that either by design or by circumstance. Um, you know, Christopher Nolan's first film following, which we showed at Slam Dance. Yeah. Um, he shot that over the course of a year, you know, like one weekend here, one weekend there. Mm-hmm. Um, and his, his lead actor's hair changes length the whole movie, you know, right. so, right. you know, or, or Linkletter's Boyhood, you know, shot over years. So mm-hmm. uh, it certainly can be done that way. And, and for the right films, it, may, it, it does make more sense. I want to transition a little bit more to the process that you were intending to do uh, for this film, uh, despite the setbacks. You know, you're telling a story about an audio recording, just like the conversation has an audio recording as a central part of it. Uh, I know that they were crafting musical themes and motifs for the film before, during, and after shooting. Yeah, you know, yeah. Have you had relationships with composers like that? What's your process with music usually like? Yeah, so this is the second film I've done with a great composer named Luis Guerra, uh, who who lives really close to me, and our, our daughters are friends. They went to school together. That's kind of how I know Luis. But um, he's a really great composer. He does the music to um, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, Revisionist History, and the Freak podcast. podcast. Yeah. So... Um, but anyway, so he did the music to my last film, Bernard and Huey, mm-hmm. and that was great. That's, you know, we, we did that together, uh, worked closely on that. Um, I think that had, there was one song that we knew in advance was going to be in the movie, and that was a song that I had written years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, on this one, while we were still in the writing process, I was kind of thinking about, tone, you know, what is the tone of the film, and and uh, and I kind of came up with the idea that it that there would be sort of a Brazilian bossa nova theme running throughout the thing, and it and it made sense contextually. There's two characters that have been to Brazil and listened to bossa nova music, and um, and I had gone to Brazil uh, to the Sao Paulo International Film Festival, the Mostra, uh, uh, like two years ago with my last film. So you know, I really had a great experience there, and mm-hmm. and it just kind of sunk in you know the brazilian theme so uh and it was great because luis knows quite a lot about um you know he studied film music at uh university of texas austin um and he really does know quite a lot about bossa nova and knows a lot of um you know musicians in la a lot of brazilians here um you know and people that can play that stuff including him so um so it was kind of a good he was a really good fit for that for that style of music and particularly kind of 70s era you know late 60s early 70s bossa nova he really knows the the history of, of you know what instruments they were using who was playing what and all that so 
there was one particular song that we needed to work into incorporate into the script. So I wrote the lyrics to it. Luis did the music to it. And, um, and that's written into the script. And that was the song that we had this little dance number to. Um, and, uh, but then even, but even in addition to that song, he was last fall was writing like just temp music, uh, for us to use. We used it for our, crowdfunding campaign that used music that you know that he had already written the music is really a great unifying feature mm. for a movie like that's the thing that i think most it's very easy to overlook um and uh and i, I feel very strongly about you know it, having a consistent flavor of music in in your film like i almost never just throw on you know soundtrack songs Right. Um, for a lot of reasons, but uh, for both practical, practical and aesthetic reasons. But I think that if you have a, like a, a narrow group of instruments, mm -hmm. you know, just like, you know, five or six consistent instrumentation throughout your whole movie, you'll have a very impact, you'll have a much more impactful soundtrack and a much more kind of unified tone to the whole film that will tie the whole piece together. Um, because I think the, that's what the audience remembers. The third man had, had a zither, right. you know, and it's like, and you still remember that. Mm -hmm. I don't know what other films have zithers. Um, so having sort of a unique sound and tone for your film, I think is, is what makes a score memorable. Hmm. Or part of what makes a score memorable. Or, or a consistent melody or a consistent, you know, like there's, there's right. other levels of consistency that you can have. Um, and in our film, we, we use this one song that we go to a couple of times and lyrically and musically, it's, it, it plays an important part in the film. That's really cool. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing it. And as you may be able to tell, for those who are watching, Dan is a treasure trove of knowledge. Uh, you should definitely get the second edition of his book when it comes out <laughs> yes. uh, to learn more about how but, his production. But don't wait. Just but get, don't wait. Get bored. it now. Yeah. Get it now. <laughs> so this has been how movies get made, and we'll see you next time. Thanks again. Dan. Thank you, Adam. Thanks for having me on.